and the gospel in song. What an encouragement to us. If you have your Bible, turn to Acts chapter 10. Acts chapter 10. We'll be in the end of 10 and the beginning of 11 today. It's always an encouragement to be able to open up the Bible, to be able to study it together, to hear from our God who has revealed himself in the pages of Scripture. It was about 20 years ago, almost 20 years ago, I was in East Germany with a team from Bayleaf on a mission trip uh, to engage in the gospel, to share the gospel. Uh, We were working, of course, cross-culturally in the nation of Germany. We were in the eastern part of the country. Uh, It was only about 15 years removed from communism, only about 15 years since uh, President Reagan had uh, asked Gorbachev to tear down the wall. And you could still see the signs of communism all around, certainly in the economic depression that they were still recovering from 15 years later. But there was certainly also a hardness and the, and the personalities of many that we engage there in East Germany. It was kind of like a, uh, it was a cross-cultural experience. It was a cultural experience. A, uh, it, was, it was an exchange program is the word I'm looking for. Uh, some students from, from Bayleaf would go, and we were engaging with students there. We were living in homes, and we were sharing the gospel. We would do activities during the day, and then in the evening, we would have a series of messages as we were proclaiming the faith and inviting response. We kicked off uh, on, a, on a Sunday morning when they had a little church gathering, and we gathered with them, and our youth pastor at the time preached the message. He proclaimed the gospel clearly, and he gave a clear invitation. At the end of the message, no one came forward to respond, um, but we had been praying that God would do a work exceedingly more than we could ever ask or imagine leading up to it, so we were a little disheartened that it began that way, um, but we persisted. We continued on in our work. Later on that evening, there was a woman that had come earlier that day. She was actually coming because her son was on our team. She lived in Germany at the time, and there was a guy on our team living here in Raleigh that joined with us, and he came with us to Germany. And so while we were there, she came down from where she was staying to listen. And she told us that earlier that morning when the message was proclaimed and the invitation was given, that not everything was translated. The message was mostly translated, the gospel mostly translated, but the invitation of response was not translated. And so we were uncertain and confused by that, and so we connected with the pastor, and we continued in a heart of prayer throughout the course of the week to try to understand what was going on. But he had a a great fear because of the past uh, experience with communism, because of people's fear of authority, because uh, so often gospel response in that land underneath communist regime was more private in nature. They were very uncertain about a public invitation and a public response. But at the same time, the gospel seemed truncated because it was not going to all people and not all people were given the opportunity to respond. We prayed throughout the course of the week, and at a different night, there was different members of our team that gave a message, and before every message, we would pray over the gathering space. We would walk through the aisles of the, of the seats that were there in the little sanctuary where we were meeting, and we would pray and invite God's presence to come. It was a really moving experience. As we would pray, uh, we would usually begin kind of quietly, each of us to ourselves, kind of walking the aisles, walking the pews, praying. But over time, while we were gathered, praying nearly an hour, uh, it turned into a chorus of prayer. We were just praying with one another, and before long, we were each praying out loud, inviting the presence of the Spirit of God to come and be with us. It was a really moving time, and regardless of whatever was going to happen after that, we would be able to walk away saying that we had the opportunity to meet with God. Because I'll tell you, in that time of prayer, it was such a special time of encouragement and such a moving time to engage with the Spirit through the Word in prayer. 
And then while the service was going on, there was a group of people that would go to an upper room and they would pray the entire time that we were gathered. On the fourth night, I had the opportunity to, to deliver the final message in the series of messages that week, and there was a, a message that was going to come with a clear gospel articulation and a clear invitation. Uncertain about how it would be received, I actually asked permission of the pastor if the woman who had come the first day would be able to translate for me. He obliged. Now, I was a little nervous, of course, because I, I knew I was going to take a risk. I was going to take a risk to dishonor or, or, or not do what he had asked us to do, which was to not give a public invitation. But at the end of our time together that day, I gave a public invitation at the hearing of the death and the resurrection of Christ for the forgiveness of sins for all who would believe, and 28 people came forward that night to give their life to Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit fell on that place, and it was such an amazing time. On the front row was the pastor, and he was just weeping, weeping in joy, not in anger, weeping because of what God had done in that space as we had gathered. And as I walked out of the space, and there was a, a group of older men in the church, and they had believed in some really hard times, but they were discouraged because in the openness of the economic opportunity that was coming, the younger generation uh, was, was being swayed by the things of the world, and, and so they were upset and worried about what the future held for the next generation. But that night, the 28 who believed were overwhelmingly young people. And they were weeping in joy because they knew that the gospel was going to continue to the next generation. You see, it's good to see the Holy Spirit move in power, to bring salvation for his people, for those who hear and respond in faith. As we've been looking at this movement series, we've been hoping for a similar kind of experience as we've gathered, but certainly also that we would obey in a similar kind of way that we ourselves, even ordinary Christians, would be faithful stewards of the Holy Spirit that God has granted each one of us at our faith and at our baptism. We want to be faithful to take the gospel. We want to be faithful to see the Holy Spirit work in and through us. We've been looking at the scriptures to see how God has been working by his Holy Spirit to build his kingdom, but also... We've been looking uh, in our own lives to be able to see, and we can ask God to do the same thing in us and through us. So if you have your Bibles open to Acts chapter 10, I'm going to begin by reading in verse 44. While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because of the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out on even the Gentiles. For they were hearing them and speaking in tongues and extolling God. And then Peter declared, Can anyone withhold the water for baptism from these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked him to remain For some days. Let's pray together. This morning, as we've gathered, Lord, we pray, Lord, that through the reading of your word and the teaching of your word, Lord, that you would orient our heart towards worship, Lord, that we would worship you even as we leave this place. We're glorifying in the God of our salvation. But Father, I also pray, Lord, that you'd be stirring in us by your spirit in a response of faith. Lord, that we would not only worship in our words, but we would worship in our actions through a life of obedience to do whatever you call us to do, to go wherever you call us to go. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. What you have in these verses is a second kind of Pentecost. What you have in these verses is a second kind of Pentecost. Earlier in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 2, that Will was preaching last week, Pentecost had come. 
The Holy Spirit had fallen in power at the preaching of God's word through Peter, and the formation of the church really began to happen there. What you have here is also Pentecost. Well, what's the difference? Well, at Pentecost in chapter 2, there were people gathered from many different nations who spoke many different languages, but they were Jews. They were Jews either by birth or by conversion, but they had come for Pentecost, for the feast of the day, in order to celebrate the ceremonies together. And then they heard there the preaching of the gospel. And many Jews were converted to believe in Christ as Messiah. But there were not Gentile believers yet, not very many. There were some. But the gospel was going to go forth even from there to the ends of the earth. And so what you have here in these verses, again, is a second Pentecost. You have the Holy Spirit poured out, speaking in tongues, people hearing the gospel in their heart language. Peter is the one who gives the message of salvation in Acts chapter 2, and he is the one that gives the message of salvation here in Acts chapter 10. It was Peter that Jesus told, upon you, upon your confession, upon this rock will I build my church. And of course, it was Peter that proclaimed the gospel earlier in Acts, and it's Peter who's proclaiming it here all leading towards a faith response that yielded baptism and the formation of faith communities. You might wonder, well then, in the text, why was there some question about whether or not they should be baptized? There was some question about whether or not they should be baptized because still in the hearts of many of the Jews was a question, did the gospel indeed go to all people? Was it also for the Gentiles? And certainly, was the Holy Spirit going to be poured out on Gentiles who practiced Gentile things? You see, in the Gentile way of life, there was a purity culture that had existed. There was a purity culture that, that, that God had given them so that the people of God would be separate and apart from the nations. And, and so there was a reluctance to engage with the Gentiles. But point number one this morning is that God will indeed fulfill his promise to Abraham. God will fulfill his dream, his, his design from creation. In Genesis 1, God created the heavens and the earth, and in that early Genesis account, he gave an instruction to Adam and Eve to be fruitful and multiply, to fill the earth with a people that would worship him. And God never departed upon that vision. His vision from the beginning of time has been for a whole people to worship him and to obey him. But you and I know that what happened in the garden was a failure. They sinned against God and they were cast out. And we see an inability of husband and wife even to love themselves well. So it would be of no surprise by the time we make it to Babel or beyond when we see nations at war with others and a kind of prejudice exists between different kinds of people. But God's plan was always for the gospel to go to the ends of the earth. And so he called a man, Abram, to come. And he gave him a promise that through him, that all nations would be blessed. And so God changed his name from Abram to Abraham in Genesis 17. He would be the father of all nations. What was unique or special about Abram or Abraham? Was he better than anybody else in the land in Genesis 11? No. Abraham, like you and I, Abram, when he was called, was a sinner in need of saving grace. He was in need of a savior who would redeem him from a life of pagan idolatry. Abram worshipped the the gods of his fathers, but God called him out of that. So God was going to use him and his children to be the beacon of light for the salvation of our God, for faith 
and repentance. God has not abandoned that vision, and so it's coming here. But Peter is coming uh, to, to grips with what's happening in a bit of confusion, which we'll come to in just a minute. Not only is it happening here in the, in the text, it's happening even still today. The gospel is still going into all the world, still going to people that have not yet heard, still bringing response from Gentiles all across the world. And that's good news for you and I, because I imagine most of you in the room are like me, a Gentile. We were separated from God, cut off and accursed, not a part of the family of faith, but by God's great love and his mercy, he saved us. Upon hearing the gospel, we repented of our sin and we trusted in him, and salvation has come to us. And so now we can anticipate the final fruition because God has already given us a picture of what it will be. In a couple of weeks, we will finish this movement series in the book of Revelation. Pastor Billy will bring it, and then the next week, we'll welcome our new senior pastor. We're so excited. And we'll be able to have seen at that period of time that God's movement from Genesis to Revelation to build God's people, to build God's kingdom through the power of the Holy Spirit. But here are these words in Revelation chapter 7. After this, I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could name. From every tribe, every nation, every people, every language, more numerous than can be counted, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches, just as they had done on Palm Sunday, leading to Jesus' crucifixion. And there they cried out what they cried out those years ago, Hosanna in the highest, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. There is coming a day when the promise will be finally fulfilled. The nations of the earth, redeemed from sin, a new people created for God's glory, forever worshiping around the throne. I cannot wait. I'll look forward to that day. But Peter and the others weren't so sure. Continue with me in verse 1 of chapter 11. Now the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea had heard that the Gentiles had also believed the word of God. So then Peter went up to Jerusalem. He was met with great shouts of praise and worship to God for saving the Gentiles. No, that's not what your Bible says, is it? He was met with criticism. So they said to him, you went to the uncircumcised men and you ate with them? Sounds familiar, doesn't it? Wasn't Jesus also criticized for doing similar things? So Peter there before these gathered leaders of the uncircumcised party, Peter, one of them really, is having to explain himself. And so what is he going to explain? What he's going to explain is what has just happened. He's going to give a testimony account of what happened earlier in chapter 10. So he summarizes and he begins, I was in the city of Joppa praying and I was in a trance when a vision came, something like a great sheet descending, being let down from heaven by its four corners. And it came down to me. And so looking at it closely, I observed animals and beasts of prey and reptiles and birds of the air. And I heard a voice saying to me, rise, Peter, kill and eat. But I said, by no means, Lord. This is not the first time that Peter has told Jesus no. Unfortunately, Peter had developed a bit of a reputation for telling Jesus no. Here, he sees a vision, and on the vision is a sheet, and on the sheet are all kinds of animals that the Old Testament law had deemed unclean. So while we want to criticize Peter for saying, by no means, Lord, perhaps he was interpreting what was going on as a test. 
Because indeed, throughout all of Jewish culture and history, after the law had come, that God had prescribed a particular way of life. Now, there were some things that were for all times and all places, the moral law of God. And there were some things that were added to Israel for discipline's sake, but also for an extra layer of purity that they would be distinguished amongst all the nations. And in the resurrection of Christ, some aspects of the law continue today. I would encourage, if you're ever looking through Leviticus, to determine what still applies and what doesn't apply anymore, to consider the law of creation. If it was according to God's design in creation, it probably still applies. The Ten Commandments certainly apply, and they're not news to Moses when he gets them, because they were true in the Garden of Eden. But there are other things that were added in the law, like not eating certain kinds of foods. That is no longer, uh, no longer a barrier for them anymore. But Peter, not knowing what's going on, says, no, I'm not going to do it. For nothing common or unclean has ever touched my mouth. But the voice answered a second time from heaven, what God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times. And all, uh, excuse me, it happened three times and all was drawn up again into heaven. So it happens three times and Peter really doesn't know what's going on. He is perplexed, but he continues in faith. Because at that very moment, three men arrived and knocked on the door. See, what was interesting, if you go back and read earlier in chapter 10, is that God was already also working on someone else's heart at the very same time. Peter was praying when the vision came. Meanwhile, there was a man named Cornelius that was also praying. Now, Cornelius was a Gentile, but he was a God-fearer. And while he was praying, God came to him in a vision and instructed him to do something. So what's about to happen is the fruition of Cornelius's obedience to God's vision to him while he was praying. But you have to wonder, why is Peter engaging with Cornelius? Not only was Cornelius a Gentile, which would have been forbidden for him to do, to kind of engage on that kind of level, but in addition to that, Cornelius was a soldier in the Roman army with authority. Who were the people, who were the early church running from? They were running from people like Cornelius. But God had come and told him, you need to go. So and this vision happens as he's knocking on the door. And he goes to the door. He answers it. And then six brothers uh, came. Oh, excuse me. Uh, earlier than that. Um, three times it happened. He arrived at the house. We were sent. Okay. Verse 11. And behold, at that very moment, three people arrived at the house in which we were. And they had sent for me from Caesarea. And the Spirit told me to go with them, making no distinction. These six brothers also accompanied me, and then we entered the man's house. The man's house that they entered is Cornelius. And so then Cornelius told them how they were praying, and then an angel came and said to them, Send to Joppa to bring Simon, who is called Peter, and he will declare to you a message by which you will be saved, you and all of your household. And as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them, just as it had fallen on us in the beginning. Remember, this is a recounting of the story. Peter is before these authorities in the church. And so he says, the spirit fell on us just as it uh, fell on them, just as it fell on us. And I remembered what the Lord had said. John baptized with water, but you will baptize with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus, who was I to stand in God's way? Point number two, the Holy Spirit overcomes fear and prejudice. The Holy Spirit overcomes fear and prejudice. Peter's fear and prejudice, our own fear and prejudice. 
You see, God is doing something right now. It has always been the case, even they who were slow to heart to believe, it was still true. And the vision was this, that God's name would be exalted in all nations, that God's name would be exalted across the whole earth. Psalm 46, 10. But they didn't quite understand it yet, but now Peter's beginning to see as the Holy Spirit falls, and so he shares it with them. And how do they respond? They fell silent, and then they praise God. There's a lot of unique things that Peter and Jonah actually share in common. To help us really understand what is happening here, God writes these, story, these details into the story. Both Peter and Jonah are given a message to take to a foreign people. Neither want to do it. Peter's name at birth was Simon, but Simon bar Jonah. Bar means son of. So Peter was a son of a man named Jonah. Both go to Joppa. Jonah goes in disobedience to flee from the presence of the Lord, but Peter is there in response while he's praying, seeking the Lord. Jonah is three days in the belly of a fish and while he's running from God, and it's Peter who has to hear the vision three times before he really begins to understand it. Both preach a message of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, and both Gentile groups repent and believe the message of the forgiveness of sins. Jonah is reluctant to receive the Gentiles' repentance, and the Jews of the uncircumcised party were also reluctant to receive the Gentiles' repentance. But it is clear God has a plan for the gospel to go to all peoples in all places, and nothing was going to stand in the way of it. The Holy Spirit was going to bring about his plan from the beginning, and he was going to do it through his children. So the question is this for us. With whom are you reluctant to share? Who do you think is unworthy to receive the gospel? Perhaps people that worship a, a different God, people that practice different religions. We live in an area with many different people practicing many different religions, whether it be Hinduism or Islam. Are you afraid of Muslims? Are you afraid to engage with them in gospel conversations, to share the gospel with them and to engage them? Are you praying for them? Are you seeking relationships out? Some years ago, I was at a training with the Baptist State Convention in North Carolina, and after the training, as we were doing some mapping in the area to determine where people are living and where they were worshiping and what is really the, the religious makeup of our area, I was assigned to go to a couple of mosques in North Raleigh. I was not enthusiastic about the task. But why fear? Or why withhold the gospel from people that were created in God's image for God's glory? You see, I, was once a, I am a Gentile, and I was once apart from Christ until I heard the message and responded. It's not like I was a Jew, a part of the family of faith, a part of the lineage of Abraham from blood. No, I was one that was cut off. But because the message came to me and I heard and responded, God made me an outsider on the inside. God made me, who was not a person in the family, now a member of the family. I am a child of God. Why would I, who was also equally unworthy, also then withhold the gospel from another? Perhaps it's people in the LGBTQ community. Perhaps it's people that's like an obstinate neighbor or someone that is hard to get along with. With whom will you not spend your time? From whom are you withholding the love of God? 
What about people of different races and ethnicities? It was just this week, completely unrelated to the message, that one of my children asked me that why, uh, why uh, people that are black and people that are white predominantly worship separately from one another. I'm an educated man, and so I got together my histor, you know, historical reasons, my sociological reasons, my theological reasons, and I was like, what am I even going to try that for? I don't know, was my answer. Because when we look at the narrative of Scripture, when we look at the vision of what it will be in the end, there is a question. One day we will be united there. Why aren't we united here? And I wish I had more answers. I will say that the younger generations are looking for answers. As they watch the news and as they see strife played out on our streets, they're looking for answers. And there are some that are proposing answers. Politicians, secular academics are proposing ideologies that are attractive because there's some kind of guess or some kind of answer uh, based in some kind of research about why things are the way they are. They're godless. They're not rooted in the gospel. Meanwhile, you and I have the answer. We have the gospel. We, We have the Bible. We have the instruction. We have the word of the Lord that has come to us. We have the commission to go. And so we ought to. But it's unique. It's a unique situation, United States of America. Perhaps London, maybe a few other places in the world are as diverse as the United States of America, but most nations are still predominantly comprised of one kind of people, still many different tribes within. But we are a melting pot, and our challenges are many. And so what should we do? I wish I had very clear and concrete answers. But for today, I just want to look back and see how the Holy Spirit in this text overcomes fear and prejudice. Peter was praying. Cornelius was also praying. How is your prayer life? Does God meet with you in your prayer life? How frequently do you gather with other believers in prayer? Are you regularly encountering the word of the Lord coming to you while you pray? Is God bringing wisdom and understanding from the words of Scripture that you've been reading while you pray? That's what happened for Peter and Cornelius. Both were praying and God came to them. Now, God may not come to you in a vision, but God has already spoken to us in his word, and he has given us a vision. John's vision. The Revelation 7 vision. And so Peter and Cornelius both obey the Spirit's instructions. And the Spirit falls. Now, there were some that criticized and some that detracted from them. And chances are, if you obey the Spirit, some are going to come against you too. And it will cause you to want to be paralyzed and to not go any further. But like Peter, who are we to get in the way of what the Holy Spirit is doing? We don't obey the ones that are criticizing us. We obey the Holy Spirit. So the Spirit falls, even though some detracted, and Peter shares the testimony of the Holy Spirit And he reminds about how God does not show partiality, how God sent his one and only son, who is not only a descendant of Abram, but he was also a descendant of Adam, from whom we all draw our lineage. It was this Jesus who came and died. It was this Jesus who suffered for sin on the cross, not just for the Jew, but also for the Gentile. And it was this Jesus who was raised from the dead on the third day, and it was this Jesus that you and I have been commanded to place our trust in. And it's this Jesus who makes us new. And it's this Jesus that has promised to bring about the full redemption of all things at the end time. And so critique turns to praise. They fall silent and they praise God. 
It was about five years ago. We had been laboring in the community and uh, came across another brother of mine that I had uh, went to Southeastern with at the seminary. His name is Josh Reed. I sought his permission before sharing this story. We were in the same neighborhood laboring to share the gospel. And the reason why I was there is because many of the children that are at Brassfield, our, local, our, our closest local elementary school, uh, were students at, uh, or excuse me, lived in that neighborhood. So off of Green Road near US-1, uh, there I was, uh, sharing the gospel, laboring, engaging, and uh, came across my, my brother, Josh Reed. Uh, Josh had been sharing the gospel in that community as well, and something really amazing happened. It was about Christmas time, and he had sought permission from the local property management uh, to send out flyers about a Christmas party that they were having. And they wanted to invite residents and neighbors. And of course, at that Christmas party, they were going to share the gospel and have a time of fellowship and encouragement, make, make new friends. As they were out uh, inviting people to this event, he came across a man named Miguel. Miguel was working on his car, and so they started a conversation with him, began to share the gospel with him. Ended up being a 35, 40-minute conversation. They, they, it had continued for some time. Miguel didn't trust in the Lord that day, but he showed enough interest where they said, you really should come to the party, and we could get to know each other more. Study the word more. You should come and study it with us. Miguel was like, I would love to. Didn't work out for him to be able to go to the Christmas party, though. And so they continued in relationship with Miguel, uh, presumably through text messaging and phone calls. And all the while, they were praying for him. Well, it finally aligned where he could come, and it was for a Super Bowl party the following February. And so Miguel came to the Super Bowl party. He knocked on the door, and they were going to study the Word of God together before the, the, the game. There was no, uh, no question about what they were going to do. They were going to uh, break apart the Word before filling themselves with junk food and watching you know, America's uh, pastime, or I guess uh, watching football, watching the Super Bowl. But when the door was opened, there was a man named Justin that answered the door. And when, Ma- when Miguel saw Justin, his face fell white, as if the blood completely left his face. Who are you? Well, my name is Justin. Tonight I'm going to be leading the, the discussion in the Word of God. Well, why was his face so white? Why was he so afraid in the moment? He began to tell them a story that for the last 10 years he had been having a reoccurring dream. And in his dream there were two people. One was his wife. And in the course of the dream, over and over and over again, God was telling him how he needed to, uh, you know, listen to his wife, you know, honor her, never forsake her, be faithful to her, that she was going to be so important in his life. And so he had made it a commitment that he was always going to be faithful to his wife. He wasn't yet a believer, but he was a God-fearer, so he had categories for prayer, and he had categories for this dream that he saw was a clearly spiritual experience. So who was the other person? The other person was speaking something, but it was jarbled. It was confused. They didn't understand. He couldn't understand what was coming out of the mouth of this man. And uh, and so he always wondered, in this dream, what was the man saying? But he had a sense that it was for salvation. It was for life change. Justin White was the man in his dream that he'd been seeing for the last 10 years. And it was Justin that led them in the study of the Word that night, And it was Justin that led him to faith in Christ because God had already told him in a dream 10 years earlier that he needed to listen to the message of salvation from this man that he did not know his name. This happened in this city. This happened off of Green Road. You know what's amazing? Two other things, part of the story, can't help but share. Uh, Now, some years later, 
Um, Miguel is a part of a group of brothers and sisters that are meeting every week at our ministry center. We have two groups of believers that meet there. One is uh, led by Pastor Patrick, a Kenyan that is a distinctly international church, but the other also has some international flavor. Miguel is a part of that network. It's a group of house churches that are meeting in the community, but they gather every Sunday for a time of corporate worship. And they're seeing the gospel spread through these neighborhood Bible studies and these neighborhood gatherings. And just this year, more than 10 people have already trusted and believed and been baptized. God is still working. And it was a way that I would never have written up myself, even more than that. A couple years ago, I'm beginning to ask the question whether or not public education is really what I want my kids to go through. You know, I've had a positive relationship with public schools. I was raised in them. I found Christ in them. A, A friend in public school shared the gospel with me. It's how I learned about Bayleaf was because someone invited me from the public library or the library at Millbrook High School. But while in these days, I I still wonder whether or not I should continue with my kids in public education. Two years ago, go to an open house. Guess who's there? Miguel's wife. Because their daughter, Camila, was in my daughter's class. How encouraging was it to know that while I was praying for my daughter's class, Miguel also praying for my daughter's class. While I pray for my daughter's teacher, Miguel also praying for my daughter's teacher. And God had brought Miguel from Honduras some years ago, and now our kids are in the same school, and we're praying for the same teachers and administration and students. And Miguel, because of his salvation, is now leading other people to faith in Christ. It's God, by the power of his Holy Spirit, that helps us overcome our prejudices, and our fears. The last point is this. The Holy Spirit blesses a life of faithful anonymity. The Holy Spirit blesses a life of faithful anonymity. Continue to read with me. Now these things, or excuse me, now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch. Of course, the persecution was what was referenced earlier in chapter 7 and 8 when the persecution is coming from the Romans and they were having to leave Jerusalem. But notice, they only spoke the word to Jews. They did not speak to anybody but Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord." Who are these people? We don't know their name. This is really remarkable. Think back with us through the movement of the Holy Spirit in this sermon series. Think about who we've talked about along this journey. We've talked about Abraham. We've talked about Moses. We've talked about Joshua and David and Solomon. We talked about Elisha and Elijah. We talked about Ruth. We talked about men and women of faith. We talked about Jesus. We've talked about John the Baptist. Now we're talking about Peter. And the heroes of the story from here are people we don't even know their names. Because God's Spirit has fallen on us. You and I have the access to the Holy Spirit. And this is truly remarkable. In the book of Numbers, there's an occasion where Moses is getting really upset because of all the grumbling and complaint of the people. And he is so upset uh, about it that he goes to God. And so God provides new leadership. And he says, I'm going to supply more leaders. And so this group of leaders goes and meets with the Spirit. Caleb and Joshua were two of the people that were with that gathering. And in Numbers 10, 11, about that area, 
the people remain with the Spirit. There's a couple of men that remain with the Spirit longer than was prescribed. And so Caleb and Joshua go to Moses and say, Stop it, Moses. They're, they're still with the Spirit. And Moses' response, I would to God that all of God's people had the Holy Spirit. Don't be jealous over them. Because God has made a way for ordinary people to have the Holy Spirit so that ordinary people can be obedient to what the Holy Spirit teaches us to do so that ordinary people can bring about extraordinary fruit. Not because of anything that we've done, but because of the power of the Holy Spirit in us. Here I struggle because I I want to give some illustrations of people living in faithful anonymity. And there's so many. I told one last night, it's different than what I'm going to tell right now. So if you want to go back and watch it, it's a a story about uh, a church member's cousin. Incredible story. But for now, I'm going to tell a story about my wife's great aunt, Johanna. Her name was Johanna Poshuma. She died at about 94 years of age. She was so influential in my wife's life that we named our oldest child after her. This woman was never married. She had the occasion to be married, uh, but circumstances in her life uh, caused for her to, to, to not be married. She cared for family very well, but she dedicated herself to child evangelism. And she was faithful to travel the country and to share the gospel with children. It's, it would be no way to calculate all those that she was able to lead to faith in Christ. And even more than that, to think about those after those kids. You know, to think about the influence that one person can have as a domino effect. Sometime in the 60s or early 70s, she was at a world mission fair, a kind of a conference, and so there was some people that, had, that were sharing about their mission, and she engaged with them and decided to begin supporting them. And so she began to write them uh, regular financial gifts to support their ministry. And not only would she write them gifts financially to support the ministry, but she'd also write handwritten notes, and she'd do so faithfully through the years. When she died some, a few years ago, uh, the executive of the estate is my mother-in-law, And she heard from some of these people. Back in the late 60s and 70s, Johanna began to support our ministry. And she never missed a year. She always wrote to us and she always prayed for us. I'm going to miss her. 50 years of faithfulness. And the only interaction was at that fair in person. She never got to see their face again. But one day she will. And the prayers prayer journal after prayer journal after prayer journal. Our family is in it, but so many others, missionaries, are in that prayer journal. A life of faithful anonymity. People may not know what you do, and if I didn't name my daughter Johanna, if I wasn't standing here, you wouldn't know anything about her. Most people don't, unless those that directly benefited from her ministry. But she received a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom of heaven a life of faithful anonymity. I'm called to stand in this pulpit today and have the occasion to preach or to share or to be in front of groups from time to time. Maybe you don't. That's okay. You be faithful to what God has called you to do and know that God sees you. So how would I encourage us in conclusion? What are some takeaways? Number one, don't be jealous over the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is multiplied, not divided. We know this because when we have children, you know, you have a child, you love them so much, and then another child comes, and as, as your wife is pregnant or, you know, as, as you're pregnant with a child, you're wondering, do I have enough love to love them too? And there's like some fear, is there enough of me to go around? And you learn that time is divided, but love is not. 
There's an immense, you know, God multiplies your love for every child that comes. The same is true with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's not divided. The Holy Spirit is multiplied. There's more than enough Holy Spirit to go around. Be faithful to carry the Holy Spirit and to invite others into relationship with God through the Holy Spirit. Number two, don't be afraid to share the gospel with all people in all places. Don't be afraid to share the gospel with all people in all places. Like Peter and Cornelius, abide in faithful prayer in the study of the word. And trust that when the Holy Spirit comes to you and instructs you in what to do, be faithful. Say yes. Obey. And who knows what kind of journey it's going to take you on. What kind of stories or testimonies that you will have to share with your children and grandchildren about how God has worked in you and through you to bring about his kingdom. But how's it come? Faithful prayer and time with the Lord. And third and last, embrace a life of faithful anonymity. Whether or not people ever know your name, it does not matter. The Lord knows your name. Be faithful to him. He sees you, he loves you, and he promises a harvest that is ripe if you persist and do not give up. Let's pray together. Lord, as we've uh, gathered in this place this morning, we, we have heard the word, and Lord, now we're coming to a time to respond to the word. Lord, I pray again that we would respond in worship because only you could have written this incredible story. Lord, help us, Lord, to worship our great God and King as we respond. But Father, would I also pray for those uh, in, whose hearts are being stirred right now to greater obedience to take the gospel to all people in all places. And that doesn't even necessarily mean to the ends of the earth because the ends of the earth are already in this community. Lord, help us to be faithful to do what you've called us to do. Lord, help us to break out of molds and to go where you call us to go. So Lord, however you desire for us to respond, we pray that we'd be faithful to respond in this time. In Jesus' name.